even your own criticisms. Just write what you're writing because there will be jewels amongst that garbage. And that day you might write almost 90% garbage, but 10% of it will be something that's gonna spark an amazing concept in that script. Hello, and welcome to the Hollywood Hustle podcast, where we bring you stories and struggles of artists climbing the ladder of success and how they survived the city of dreams, Los Angeles. Hello, everyone. My name is Michael Lutheran, and I am the producer of this podcast. Unfortunately, for a second week in the row, Daniel and I could not match up together to do these intros and outros for our interview with Josh Otter. But it's okay, though, because it means that we're actually really busy. We're busy with the podcast. We're moving things along there. Uh, we were able to record an interview recently that we're excited to share with you down the road. I'm also been fairly busy acting wise. Uh, today is a first for this podcast. I don't know if this has ever happened on another podcast, but I am recording to you right now in my car. <laughs> That's right. I have uh, my blue snowball mic uh, kind of gripped to my steering wheel. I have my uh, my cover uh, attached to my steering wheel. I have a laptop in my uh, driver's seat next to me. Uh, it is, it's a full-on studio here in my car, folks, but I'm excited because the reason why I'm broadcasting to you this way is because today's a busy day for it being an actor. It's, it's great. I had work this morning, uh, so I work, for those of you familiar with Los Angeles, the geography at least, I work over near Beverly Hills, Century City, and I have... I just finished up an audition actually over in Hollywood at Cast Studios and they're located kind of center Hollywood. Um, the audition itself went really well. It was for a film uh, that would be filming towards uh, the end of August and went in there. It was three different sides for the same character. Uh, very interesting story. I was very gripped by it and I was able to put in my time, rehearse, but also come from a place of who I am and being myself under these cir circumstances. And so I auditioned for the director and the cinematographer and got some new additional information <laughs> within the audition. Uh, the director wanted to see if I could do uh, a stammer, a speaking stammer, which uh, if you've been listening to this podcast for a little bit, it flares up once in a while, but I did actually have a speaking impediment when I was younger. So I was able to bring that out, that bring that natural experience uh, to the audition. You know, the conversation went really well. I was able to take his adjustments. So feeling very good about it. But my day is not stopping here. Uh, I actually finished up a rehearsal then uh, with my scene partner for my acting class. And I'm about to walk into my acting class right now. And I'm excited because in my acting class, we're practicing in what is called in Meisner technique, uh, the superlative. We're trying to practice very specific behaviors given an emotional circumstance and we're interrupted by an outside force, as it were. Uh, in this case, it's a person coming into the scene and they have their own objective. They have their own emo emotional circumstance. But tonight, I'm trying to channel one of my childhood heroes. I'm trying to be my most inner Robin Williams uh, as I try to be the most Mrs. Doubtfire in revealing this news to my mom that I'm taking her on a trip to England. It's not really happening. I'm not going to England, unfortunately, but it's trying to behave in this very particular way um, to try and get this specific emotion across. And I've got a shower cap. I've got a, 
a tin pie can, and I've got some whipped cream. And for those of you who've seen Mrs. Doubtfire, I'm going to try and replicate that moment where he sticks his face in the pie because he doesn't have his mask, and he comes out and says, Oh, hello! So, wish me luck, everyone, as, uh, as I'm about to go in there and do this. But meanwhile, while I go into my uh, class, we need to switch things on over to Josh Otter, our guest this week on the podcast. Now, I actually personally know Josh. He was the first film director I ever worked with down here. He was a student at UCLA, and he was directing a scene for directing, or he was in a class for directing for actors. And I, you know, I saw the student, uh, I saw the audition call on backstage. I went in on a whim. We have worked together so much since then, and it's been an amazing friendship. It's just been a wonderful example of just say yes to opportunities. A, th- a quick throwback to our interview with Kurt Mega. Just say yes, because you never know who you're going to meet through this experience. And Josh is such a, a wonderful guy, as you previously heard in the last episode. I'm really excited to share with you uh, Act 2. During this conversation, we discuss how to find one's own voice as an artist. Josh shares some amazing advice on how to approach writing, which I believe can also be applied really across the board to all artists, which is to just go for it and not hold back. That amidst some of the garbage, you'll find some treasure, some really great ideas that you wouldn't have gotten unless you went there. We also discuss the step-by-step process, as well as the financial costs of getting your own project film in Los Angeles. All this and more is coming your way, so... Ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, enjoy Act 2 with Josh Otter. Thank you, Daniel and Michael. And we are back again with the man, the myth, the punk rocker, the blue-haired man himself, Mr. Josh Otter. Hey, Josh, welcome back. What's up, man? Thank you so much for hanging out and staying around for this uh, roundtable discussion. Absolutely. Now, it wouldn't uh, be a roundtable discussion if we didn't bring in the producer, uh, of Hollywood Hustle Podcast. Uh, fun fact, not many people know this, but Michael was the stand-in for E.T. when E.T. was on the bike underneath the blanket. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, E.T. stand-in, Michael Lutheran. That basket was surprisingly comfortable. <laughs> Did you fall asleep in it? Oh, totally. Definitely. And, you know, sometimes Stevie would... You know, Stevie, I meant Steven Spielberg. He would. <laughs> we get it. He would come over and tap me on the shoulder and say, "Hey, hey, Mikey, we're ready for you." And you're like, "Okay, Steven, <laughs> where's my M and M's? How old were you? Four? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> where's my writer contract? <laughs> writer contract at four? I wish. That's Blue Ivy stuff right there. Like she, you know, she has a writer. Uh, so." Uh, we're just going to talk a few things, just a few topics uh, that I think will interest those listening to the podcast, hopefully. Um, so let's just kind of start off with, you know, we all we all kind of come from different artistic standpoints. Uh, Josh, you on more of the director side, not to negate the other things you do, but obviously that is something you focus a lot on. Um, Michael from the actor side, me more on the writing side, but obviously we all have dabbled in the other arts and as well. How do you go about finding your voice in that art? What is how do you feel you know go about finding yourself comfortable in that art and you know trying to make your own statements in it? I think one thing that I've learned from a directing standpoint is kind of more and more I try to find the vision of every moment. 
Um, like, I think when you're young, so when you first start out as the director, you're always supposed to be the dude with the answer. Like when they come to you and they're like, do you want this red shirt? Do you want this blue shirt? Like you're the guy that has to decide. And, and normally they want a legitimate reason why you're choosing it. And I think when you first start out, uh, it's half the crap. It's, I mean, it's crap. Half the time it's like, oh, I want the red because it would symbolize pain in the actor. But like, I do think as time goes by, I've actually tried to embrace those moments and try to find the meaning of everything in the scene. And you can't, I mean, you can't get so ridiculous that you, you have time to analyze everything, but I've taken a lot of, you know, courses in breaking down scenes and moments. And you start to realize that the ones that do really own their craft as much as I want to do have like an excuse for almost every image in every frame of every movie. Like, you know, why they positioned the mountain where they did in the background because it symbolizes that it would be, you know, crushing down on the actor or something to that standpoint. And so I've tried to embrace finding the specific elements of, of every moment as a director. Uh, again, like whether I do or not, it's that's part of the growth, but I think that's what I'm trying to find in my vision, you know? I think on, on the writing side, I think you said it really best on the last episode where you talked about kind of like when you throw ideas out, log lines and different things, you try to fig- find one that sticks. You just throw them out until one sticks. And it's really about finding that one that um, flows easily, mm-hmm. uh, it, qu- quote unquote, as right. best as possible, yeah. where it's easier to come up with, oh, I can see where this is going to go and mm-hmm. I can see how this can expand and grow and branch out into the different stories and plots. And I think for me, it's finding just who you are. Like you said, writing what you know and also writing who you are or maybe that part of you that people don't get to see. Uh, a lot of stuff I write end up being kind of dark. And I, if for the, you know, the people that know me know I am not a dark person for the most part. I'm usually very outgoing and funny. I, you know, I try to be funny. And and the time, you're mildly you know, okay. My, I'm 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 mildly I'm humorous at best. Um, I get giggles, um, but it's it's one of those things where part of the stuff I write is a little darker than who I am um, because I think that's where I get that part of me out mm. and I express that. And I think it's just finding where you feel comfortable and where you land, but also not being afraid to go out of your comfort zone as well. But to know who you are and what you you need to know what you love. What do you love about movies that you watch? And that'll help you know, as, a, as at least for a writer, what you want to focus on. Yeah, I, I'd be interested to hear your take too, because I know when I write, it's almost, at least for a short film, like I said, I'm getting to the features. I, I've written one that's like on a shelf and will never come off because it's garbage. But um, like, I definitely know with shorts, I know almost immediately if if it's an idea that I'm going to be able to carry forward. Like, like to your point, like I know not only do I throw out a log line, but the moment it kind of sticks and like the wife is like, yeah, that's an interesting concept. If stuff will just start flooding in the moment that concept is like, like appreciated a whole bunch of other concepts is the where it could go starts flooding in. And if they don't, then I know almost immediately like, man, this is going to be really tough to write. And I have so many others like, do, do I pursue that? Because again, with me being young in writing and early in writing, it'll show real quickly that I tried to push through some of that. I applaud you for being able to write shorts because anytime I've ever tried to write a short, it ends up being 60 pages long. And I'm like, well, it's not a short anymore. I might as well make it 75, 80 pages. And we'll call it, you know, 90 pages, we'll call it a day. But so like, I applaud you for being able to write a seven minute, you know, beginning and end with a somewhat of a narrative, you know, a story in it. 
because I, I can't do it. I, mine always just blows up into something way bigger than me in a lot of ways, you know. Well, we'll, we'll, yeah, we'll let others judge because one of the criticisms that I read online of Land of Happy Dreams is the guy said, I liked it, but I didn't love it because it felt like the middle part of a feature I'd want to watch. <laughs> I'm like, well, I don't take that wrong. Like, okay, like find me some funding and I'll make this a feature. You know what I'm saying? It, it was an elevator <laughs> pitch that yeah, you made. For exactly. Your- <laughs> um, Michael, I'm very curious just on this because... You know, obviously, your voice a lot of times, and I hope I hope this is not an insult, is from the script and 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 the director and, and the the other elements that come out from a film. So, what to you is as an actor finding an actor's voice? An acting performance is nothing without the words and the direction and the work of the cinematographer, right? Like, there's so much that goes into it, specifically a film performance. But for me and what I'm currently learning uh, with my acting class and just the more and more that I work, it's about understanding who I am, what I'm kind of what you were talking about, like what movies are, are, do you find interest in? What material are you naturally gravitated towards? So part of it is coming from that side. And also what I really like, Josh, in the previous episode, you were talking about meeting with the actor, having that kind of discussion of... This is, you know, laying down the groundwork of this is who this character is. This is kind of their background. The more essential elements in building a foundation, but then also welcoming the actor's side of that character's ideas. And what you were just talking about of finding a reason for every single moment within a scene, that it's the same for the actor. Um, I'm learning more and more just as I watch film and everything like Anthony Hopkins uh, I believe both of you guys have seen Westworld mm-hmm. I love that on show, HBO man. Daniel a little bit <laughs> well just watching him on that show so good man oh it's so good I know I know I need to finish <laughs> but just watching Anthony Hopkins in that specific role there's so many nuances that he's doing and it's all about Listening to what one character is saying, having an opinion about it, how do you process that information and then how do you respond? And there's just so many moments in just anything of watching an actor react. So much of it I'm learning is all about reaction and having that opinion. I I do want to ask, I kind of, I don't know, this this is probably not playing devil's advocate, I don't think it'll be controversial at all, but I think it would be best to say that as an actor, you don't want to have a voice. You want to have many voices. Because you look at actors like Daniel Day-Lewis, who just retired from acting, I think, for like the third time. <laughs> um, you know, you watch you know, Lincoln, and then you watch Gangs of New York, and it's two different people. Like, it's completely yeah. two different characters, two different physicalities, two different voices, two different deliveries and how they speak. So, with, you know, obviously you can tell usually when... You're watching a you know this person's script versus this person's script, but I think as an actor, it's almost best to say you don't want to have a voice; you want to have several voices. Well, I think it's different because you have certain performers like Christopher Walken, who so much of his performances are just him. Mm-hmm. You you bring on Christopher Walken not for his ability to necessarily transform as a performer. You're bringing on Christopher Walken to be. Christopher Walken in that imaginary circumstance 
And then you get the Gary Oldmans, the Daniel Day-Lewis, the people who can transform. And so I think it's all about, as an actor, of figuring out what method you're really interested in. As an actor, are you about really just being yourself in the moment? Or are you about that transformative, I'm going to starve myself? You know, for a couple of months, I, I working with Trainspotting, uh, we were talking about in the last episode, one of the actors in that show, uh, Jonathan Rumi, fantastic, incredible actor. He was so committed to the role he was playing. He played Sick Boy, and who's a heroin junkie in that show. And he went on a strict 500 calorie diet of just, you know, every day he would have a spoonful of peanut butter, he would have an apple, he would run eight miles, you know, it's it just like so much stuff to create. And and this wasn't for film, this was for theater. That's why I stay behind the camera. <laughs> I was like, bring me the crafty table. <laughs> exactly, but the thing is, if you there, if you go to his website and you can see pictures of him, he, he is transformed into this character and his performance was absolutely incredible could he have not done that to himself and have just as effective of a performance probably but again what interests you as an actor and how far are you willing to push yourself are you trying to become someone else completely different or are you just trying to be yourself i would argue that him he probably couldn't have given us somebody else could have given as good of a performance not going that far but he needed to go that far to give that performance so his method required that he go there and if he hadn't gone there you would have seen it because he wouldn't have not felt it in himself that he took that character to lengths he needed to you know so that's what i love like that's why i love the pre-meetings because with actors i love to see where they take the character after just giving them that like and it's not like i sit down and say this is where he came from. it's always a back and forth like and normally they're the ones even dictating the questions because they've read the script and they know what they need to know to fill that character's gaps and the holes and to accomplish what they want to accomplish with it so it's it's actually more even often driven by them of asking me questions of where each part came from and i've found every time i have those meetings once we get on set it's it's very small tweaks to what I want. And, and it, it may be totally different than what I expected, but it's just so true to them and so awesome that they've encompassed it the way that they have that then it's just like minor tweaks to the performance, you know? And as an actor, I appreciate so much a director really giving me a clear idea of what they want, mm -hmm. right? Because so much, if I the more of a specific vision you can give me, that gives me more to work off of. and. You know, for all of the actors listening out there, it at the end of the day, it's the director's call or the sometimes the producer's call. You know, <laughs> you, you have this pre-meeting, you get this idea, but as an actor, you can't go off and all of a sudden dye your hair as a rainbow or anything right. like that because you feel that that's what the character is. That you have to make sure, yes, you have your own individual voice in creating this character, but it's in service of this much larger story. When you, I guess it's two questions. One, are you more a dialogue writer or are you more of a narrative narrative writer? In the sense of like the narration, uh, you know, which do you feel your strongest at? And then the second question I have, uh, why you think about that one, is when you sit down and write, how, how what if I had like put a camera in front of your computer while you were writing, what would I see while you're writing? Panic, <laughs> panic and pain. Um, well, for the 
for the first part, um, both of them serve equal purpose in a film, but a teacher once told me that if if it doesn't need to be shown visually, then it shouldn't be a film. Like there's some things that should be a novel instead of a film. And there's some things that should be a poem instead of a film. So I'm, I'm, I would say I'm probably much stronger on the narrative because I visualize everything. And to me, the, the dialogue is to push forward the character, but the, the narrative is to visually sell it as a, as a, as the need for a visual medium, you know? So um, that's probably where I lean towards. You know, I think again, if it's if it's all dialogue, maybe it should just be a, a radio show instead of a film. You know, um, again, they both serve equal purposes in a movie, but I, that always stuck with me that he said, just because you write it doesn't mean that the best method for delivery is a film. You know, if it does not serve a visual purpose and a visual medium, then it shouldn't be a film. You know. Have you ever tried writing anything not film or script related, like a book or anything like that? Um, yeah, I mean, I like I said, I, I had like this. It's man, I, I bet if I read it now, I would like. I was like, what is wrong with me? But like, I had like a whole book of like poems that I had written when I was younger and stuff like that. And uh, yeah, like I don't even want to find it. Like I don't know where it is, and I don't ever want to find it because I'm sure it's this horrible like teen angst ridiculousness. Um, but I've tried other stuff, and I've even tried. I've even like occasionally sat down like, oh, I wonder if this would make an interesting novel. But then again, like my mind is so driven on a visual and like how I see it that it immediately transforms into camera angles and shots and camera movement. And it's like, oh, I'm just going to make this a movie. <laughs> like, why would I write this as a novel? Like, there's no, there's no point because I just don't like, I need to see the visual medium, you know? So, so if I put a camera in front of you while you're writing, <laughs> Would I see you pacing a lot? Would I see you like talking to yourself? Or are you a quiet, you just kind of get it on paper? No, I I pace a lot. Um, I mean, when I'm conceptualizing it, I pace a lot. And then I'll go somewhere, you know, dark and quiet. Literally, I'll go like sit in the bedroom with the lights off and then I'll start typing, you know, and then I'll put the computer away and start, you know, outlining again. And um, I don't, cause I don't have like, I do an outline almost every time but it's normally starts as more of a bullet point outline. And then as I'm writing scenes, as the next scene is coming up and I know where it's going, I try to go almost like re-outline just that scene and then come back and write it again. So I have like a very loose like back and forth as to you know when I'm writing versus when I'm conceptualizing the concept, you know? I, that's one of my, one of the things I do and I hate it the most because I'm always like, I'll write a scene and then I'll continue this, then I'll go, Oh, you know it would have been really great before that scene, but that totally affects the next scene, yeah. the scene I just wrote. So I'm like, now I've got to change everything. I've got to add a character. This character doesn't even make sense anymore, and it's it's maddening. Yeah, like the things that you have to keep track of in your head as a writer. I just did that the other day, actually. <laughs> like I I wrote, I made one small change, and I'm like, oh man, that throws off the continuity of everything that just happened in the scene before. As someone who keeps on going up to the computer and wanting to write and keep like my problem as a when I try to write is that I am very critical to the point where I will sometimes talk myself out of the way because it's not perfect right because I can't find a way to you know specifically write it the way I see it in my head what do you both as writers do to turn that self edit button off I I definitely 
I say this and probably don't implore it enough. It's probably like one of those things that I tell everybody else to do and I don't do myself. But somebody said one time that there is no such thing as writer's block. Writer's block just means you're being too self-critical. Like if you if you really want to write, you'll just continue to write and then you'll come back later and analyze. Again, it's, it's kind of like I told you about people's criticisms. Even your own criticisms, just write what you're writing because there will be jewels amongst that garbage. And that day you might write almost 90% garbage, but 10% of it will be something that's going to spark an amazing concept in that script. So again, I, I have quote unquote writer's block at times too, and I just set something down and walk away. But somebody told me one time, writer's block is a, is a, is a falsity. Like there's no such thing. It just means you're being too self-critical and you don't want to move forward with writing. You know, I, I think... One thing, the best advice I can give, again, I think it's the same thing. I don't know if I take it, <laughs> yeah. you know, if I put it to yeah, good no use. Doubt. Because I'm the same way. I'll have moments where I'll start writing something, like, this is garbage. And like, th- and I've written like three sentences, and I'm like, this is terrible. I don't know where this is going. I have no clue what it's, I'm doing with this story. And I don't even know who the characters are. Why even keep going? And I think the best advice I can give for, for you, uh, uh, Mr. Lutheran, and those listening, is... No, your your computer, though connected to the internet, you're not writing in a chat room. You're not writing on a live stream. No one else has to see what you're writing. Mm-hmm. It is up to you to email that to somebody else. It's your choice to show that to your girlfriend and have her read it. So it can be as terrible as it wants to be. And don't. And I think we had a guest uh, that kind of brought up writer's block before, and and something she said that really kind of came to me is that writer's block is just a fear of something mm-hmm. yeah. and you're either afraid it's gonna it's gonna stink or you're, or you're afraid you don't know what you're doing or you're afraid of whatever it is but there's it's because of some sort of fear and if you can figure out what that is you can get past it and so you know a lot of times for me it's it's a fear of it being bad and it's a fear of like me realizing i'm not a good writer and you know i read a thing also this other thing you know, the first draft is not the final script it's it's right. just the beginning and so going down and getting over that fear and sitting down and saying, I'm just going to write it. Just get it out. And then if it's nothing, you can throw it away and start over. But again, you're not connected to anything where anybody's going to see that. If you hit save, it's not going to automatically send it to all your best friends and your family and be like, look what I've written. It's the final draft. You know. So I think that's something to remember is it's just for you. And kind of going back to what you were saying, Josh, of writing it for yourself Mm -hmm. as opposed to what you were just saying, Daniel, for other people. Uh, You have to go in with your own perspective. And because if you don't, if you try to go out and please everyone, it's going to fall flat because there's not going to be that sense of flavor or that uniqueness that that comes with an individual story. And if it's your first one ever, I would just say, just do it. Like, believe me, the first feature script I wrote is horrible. Nobody will ever see it. But it proved to me that I can write a full-length feature script. I have the capacity to conceptualize the acts and move forward to completion. And just knowing that you can do it that one time will tell you, like, the next one's going to be better. And even if it's not, the one after that will be better. Nobody, you know, learns to play the piano the moment they sit down at the piano. But you've got to, like write that garbage to prove to yourself that you can complete it and then get to the next one. And I'll say, don't, don't write. Cause I, I, I kind of, I know that some of the ideas you have, Michael, that, that you want to write. Yes. I would say if you, if your biggest problem is sitting down and getting, getting from point A to point, you know, to the end, to point B, 
then come up with a, a small topic or a small idea and write that not the thing you've had in your head for six years yeah. that that way you can break through that fear of just getting something on paper and then you may also find another thing another film that you didn't know you had inside you so doing that just as a as almost like a practice or a workshop so then you go okay i can get this i can go from point a to point b maybe i can do it with that other one i want to run a marathon but my first day of putting on the shoes, I'm not going to run a marathon. Yeah. So keep that idea and that passion in the back of you know the mind and just know that I'm going to get there. But we first got to go and stumble for a little bit. But so, Josh, we're just talking about, you know, finally coming out with a feature script or, you know, completing a script. Let's maybe transition because as an actor, I don't have as much knowledge about this, but filming the actual process of filming in los angeles <laughs> oh man how much fun is that oh, how many hours do geez. we have no so uh, just real quick i'm really interested to hear your process of you know you have the script now you're starting to think about getting into production so what's what knowledge can you share uh with our listeners about that process the some of it is intimidating. Some of it I found to be intimidating for no reason, right? Like, for example, working with SAG, like that sounds super intimidating. It's the least painful process ever because SAG wants their actors to be working. So they work with you and they are helpful and they will step you through the process. And if you didn't get a document signed right, they'll give you time to get it done. It's like, it's they're not out to get you. So they're there have been a lot of things I've found that I'm like, oh man, I'm just going to use non-union actors because I don't want to, you know, deal with it. But it's just getting past that fear and like trying to deal with that versus like the other side, which is, I hate to say it, but Film LA is kind of the the other way in a way. Like they they get money by you getting permits, right? So, so they're not, they don't have a client that they're servicing that they want to succeed on your behalf. You're purchasing a product from them. Film LA is a, is, I think it's a nonprofit entity. I don't think it's officially a government entity, but in essence, they're the ones that permit any sort of filming inside of LA County. Um, I don't know the specific parameters, but pretty much if you want to shoot in LA, you got to deal with Film LA. And they're in essence the ones that, you know, you have to give a very specific location as to where you're going to film. And uh, and then they dictate like what safety requirements are, are necessary to get that permit. Um, and then they literally give you a permit that that you can show to the authorities if you're stopped in any way that says, I've been granted and I've followed the rules necessary to be able to film at this location. And how much does you know, a film permit range in terms of financial costs. Another advantage to being a student, if you're if you're a student, I think it's literally like 25 bucks. I think they just enacted a discount if it's a, a, for online, if it's new media. Oh, okay. I think, they just, like, I think they just did a new discounted price for that as well. And a lot of people are pushing them to do all kinds of different pricing because it, it was pretty much just student or everything else. And so I was paying the same price as the networks were to get their permits. So it was like the base price is like 625 bucks, like just out of the gate to, to permit a couple locations. But then almost always that they also want a fire check and stuff like that. So you're talking like $800 to, to film legitimately permitted at a location. 
Oh, well, well, what's interesting is you talked about like filming in Las Vegas, where you could literally go on any corner yeah. and film, and people come by and be like, "Ooh, can I be in your movie?" You yeah, know, like so. It and Dallas a lot is the same way for the most part, but like here, you cannot film anywhere. It's very tough a to make I a mean, movie. You have to do it like know what you're going to do. You have like ten minutes before somebody drives by, right. and calls the cops, and they won't arrest you, but they'll kick you out. Yeah. Well, uh, so that's another point. LAPD are they trained to specifically seek out? Filmmakers who might I mean, be shooting on the fly, or they—I mean—they don't want to. It's not—I mean—they got other things that they'd rather be doing. But by the same token, like, um, it's—if you want to shoot something that's legit, it's pretty hard to hide it. Like, you know, somebody always says, "Well, why don't you just shoot gorilla?" I said because the DP I work with, like, he doesn't like—he rolls up with like you know uh, Ari Banks and you know Kinos and you know four buys. Like, you can't hide that. Like, you everybody knows what you're doing, you know? So I don't think that they want to be out busting people, but like the, if it's their job to make sure, because there is safety implications to it. Like some of those, I mean, it's getting easier with LEDs and stuff, but some of those old school lights get super hot. Some kid walks by and touches a light because you're not like kind of following the rules of the permit. You could burn the poor kids. So they have legitimate reasons why they need to be there and why you need to go through the process. But by the same token, it is it is a little difficult right now. And from what I have heard, there are unit police units that that is their job. Yeah. Is to drive around looking for people filming and checking their permits. Yeah, so and I've heard their, the their jobs. I've heard the horror stories too that if you apply for a permit and then like don't like you don't have the money or you don't get it, like they'll keep track of where you asked to film on what day and they'll send somebody out there to make oh, sure I you didn't just that. go do it guerrilla style. Really? I had yeah. not heard that. Yeah, so I, I don't know if it's true, but I've like and I I mean I wouldn't be surprised. Like you ask them, I want to film here on this day, and they say, Well, it's gonna cost this much. You say, Oh, never mind. I'm sure they're gonna like assume you probably were just gonna do it on your own right. and potentially potentially take a look to make sure you're and again like I don't mean to to trash them like the 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 purpose that they're serving is extremely valid but it's just very tough in the city because they're it's the same people servicing very large studio projects that are trying to facilitate me and I have nary the means that they do so it's just really difficult you know I mean I don't mean to generalize this point but do you think certain things like that is why so much production has left Los Angeles. Um, no, because the big budgets, they get like, they don't have a problem dealing with film LA. Like they get the permits they need, they can afford them. I think they're leaving mainly due to tax incentives and stuff like that. And, you know, just the, the ease of production in different locations, uh, in terms of the credits, it, it mainly, I think right now, again, with Hollywood, I think it's all financial. I think wherever they can get the best incentives and the incentives here, I just at, um, at dances with films, they had a lot of cool panels and one of them was about specifically about financing films and, and credits and stuff like that. And I guess the LA one, although we have one is, is, is kind of difficult. Like it's a lottery system if you're under a certain amount of money. And, you know, I, there was people on the panel that were like, one of them was one of the financiers for get out, you know, the recent, and that's, you know, did really well. He said he's literally submitted like 15 films to that lottery and never won it. So it's more like it's just harder for them to get incentives to film here. You know? I, think, I think another big difference between, you know, Los Angeles and other places that restaurants and businesses will have their oh, contact man. information for like the restaurant, but then also we're available for filming. It, contact this person at this number of this email address. When I saw that, when I first moved here, it cracked me up because that you don't see that anywhere else, I would think. Other maybe New York, maybe. But it's it, that's a very rare thing to see 
uh, in other cities is like the contact this person. They're our film guy for this restaurant. But it's a good point. Like that adds another layer of difficulty and complexity to a low budget like indie film trying to make their way. Because so for Land of Happy Dreams, I needed a really nasty, dirty motel. So I drove down like, you know, north Sepulveda area to where all the, you know, street walkers are and stuff. And like literally the motel on the sign says like 35 bucks a night. And you walk in and you say, I'd like to shoot a very small, low budget, like, and they're like, okay, 500 a night. Like literally, it was the dirtiest of motels. And the cheapest guy I found was 500 to rent the rooms. Because the moment you say you're making a movie, they think you're like trying to pull one over on them and you're really shooting the next feature with, you know, Bruce Willis and they want money. So it's to your point, like, again, differences between Vegas and Dallas and places like that is like they're not their first thought is not, oh, you're a studio. You have a lot of money. But that is the thought here. Like the moment you say I'm, I'm shooting a movie, can I film in the motel? It's like, oh, certainly for 500. Like. It says thirty five dollars a night on the sign, and you rent a room, and then just see. But then, but you have to permit and get insurance. Like again, that was another thing about permits. Like the permit may be six or eight hundred, but the permit requires that you have a certain insurance policy to get approved for that permit. The insurance policies out of the gate, just a general liability policy for a weekend is like three or four hundred bucks. So like it's you're you're like. You're thousand dollars on the books without ever having hired an actor, you know, gotten a location, rented a camera, you know, bought catering, nothing. Like you're out of the gate. If you want to do it legit, you know, um, I kind of like go. I kind of cross the line a little. Like Lana Happy Dreams, we permitted um, the motel. But once I had everything on film that I knew I could complete and edit, I looked down the street and said, oh, there's a couple cool things down there. Let's just walk down and grab them and see if we can. And, you know, we were able to. So, you know, we didn't have the street permitted. We didn't have the sidewalk permitted. But if I got stopped and they told me to go away, I'd be like, all right, my film, I got enough in the can to complete this. But luckily for me, like the if, if anybody looks on the you know website or anything like that, one of the coolest shots with uh, Brianna Marin, who was amazing in the movie, is like looking in the window of a convenience store and like the open sign is like flashing right on her perfectly and it has a perfect reflection of her and you only see the reflection and not her face. It was it was totally gotten on a stolen shot walking down the street, you know, like it's one of the coolest shots we have in the movie and it was because we just walked down the street and she unfortunately really got into the role and uh, decided she was going to pretend like she was flagging down cars and she flagged down a cop, but he <laughs> was super nice. He had like, it was North Sepulveda. He had legit stuff to be dealing with because it was like one in the morning. He's like, all right, you know, he sees a camera and some lights. He's like, all right, you guys are doing a movie, whatever. I got to go, you know, but she like flagged him down. Like, I'm like, oh no, the first car she tries to walk up to and act like she's like street walking. She flags down a cop. And the movie almost didn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, the very end of shooting. And, and so from location permits, now you're starting to get the crew and everything like that. Yeah. So again, like 
it goes back to the adage of nobody's going to care about your film as much as you. And, and if I'm dealing with a studio, like I'm not out on the look, like they're going to go on a location scout based on the information I gave them. And they're going to come back with like the top three or five. And then I'm going to go out and see those. But like when it's, when it's low budget, it's me, like it's me and my wife and we're driving through 12, 13, 15 hotels and motels and saying, can we shoot here? You know? So you, you gotta, you gotta be willing to, know that the fun part is sitting on a set and the camera's rolling but if you don't also have passion for every other part of it it's going to be super tough to make that movie yeah. you know you, you got to do the work to make to do that the thing you love yeah i think so like that work's not fun yeah like for my short films i'm probably more anal than most but like i do like six to eight weeks of pre-production i film for like three days and then i'm in post for like four months you know i mean that like the three days is what everybody sees and that's what everybody thinks making a movie is but making a, even a short is like a five-month process of three days on front of the camera it know? seems like you work with a lot of the same people for a lot of your things um do you have someone that is consistently running your sets um no it's just what i've found is like I mean, I think with anything, when you find good people, you might as well keep working with them. And we, and we've, believe me, we've found some not like we've had, you know, some people on sets and like, there's, there's been, you know, some people you're like, oh man, I, I would never work with them again. But the ones that you do find, if you, if you like how they work and you like their product, uh, you might as well keep that community together, you know? Um, so yeah, like, you know, the 12 step, I had a cinematographer and, and he was really good, but the collaboration wasn't as much as I would like he was really good on set but he wasn't really too involved in in pre-production and post and as much as I would like so you know I I you know kind of started interviewing some others and I, I found this this young kid who's super aggressive has a, an amazing eye for for lighting um and like I said his his dad was uh has worked with Spielberg as his lighting technician for a year so he's you know been growing up like seeing light and understanding how it interacts with the frame and um so you, I'm, you know, going to work with him as long as he wants to keep working with me because I, I think, uh, you know, he's he's a super strong collaborator. He sees the same things I see. So and and with actors too, like certain parts require certain actors, but by the same token, when I go into casting, um, I I don't always just reach to the same people. I run casting for every single project, but I'll bring a lot of the old same people back in to see how they adapt to the new roles, and I almost never have a specific like there's things like if it's a if it's a millennial they obviously have to be a certain age range and stuff but i very rarely have it so detailed that like oh i need a person of this complexion and this hair color and this eye color i just want to see what everybody brings to the part and then find the person that i felt like encompassed it the best you know it shouldn't again there's certain things that i understand require a quote-unquote look but by the same token the most important thing to me at this level is the best performance like regardless of their general appearance so i stay open to all that you know having worked with you <laughs> I, I and i can honestly say like i've really enjoyed working with you because i've worked in the roles that are you know this is the lead one of the lead roles in this story but then I've also worked with you on the, you know, where I'm further in the foreground and stuff. And it's so cool, though, to see that, first of all, you run a really professional set. Oh, thank you. You make sure that everyone's taken care of. And I think that's key to anyone who's thinking about making a film or producing any type of pro project is to take care of the people on set. Especially if it's, you know, working long and long hours if you're filming late at night yeah you and christine you guys always make sure that 
people are well fed that the energy is always positive oh thanks and i and I, I think that's just an example of what to strive for especially when you're just starting out creating your own uh, first official content and stuff like that is to make sure that you're treating everyone with respect and for their time. I mean, one thing people learn, I'm sure both of you have seen it, the moment you get here, you immediately realize how small the industry is. Like, which you don't think, like they're massive, but everybody knows everybody. And I just think that if you, if you don't treat people right, the word's gonna spread and why would they wanna, like, look, I know for a fact I'm not paying any of these people what they deserve to be paid. They all deserve well more than I can afford to pay them. So the least I can do is appreciate their work and give them respect and try to give them everything I can give and hope that that spreads and that other people want to come work with us because of that, you know? I mean, again, none of the actors or crew or anybody are getting what they deserve, so I hope they at least get an experience that they that they are glad they received, you know? Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and, and you're you're doing the best to offer that time and make sure it's well well worth their time, right? Coming on set now, something you know we we we've kind of talked about is you have to have jobs <laughs> to fund what you're doing. Um, I I know Michael and I, and obviously you mentioned we all have full time yeah jobs that we have to do that take up at least most of our day. Um, I get, you know, let's talk about that. Doing stuff that's away from what you want to do, doing stuff that you, you you don't want to do, but you know you have to do because you have responsibilities. We, you know, me and you have wives. I have a child. Uh, you know, Mike's got a girlfriend, and he's Mike got, is a child. Mike is a child. Yeah. <laughs> At the time of this recording, I'm wearing a Hey Arnold shirt. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, he has a girlfriend, and he has responsibilities to to her and and to his roommates uh, to make sure that they can all still keep living where they're living. Um, so let's kind of talk about that. Like, what it, you know, what's how does it feel to make that sacrifice? Does it feel worth it? Um, and in 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 the energy it takes out of you that takes away from what you love to do and how you push through that and maybe just to add on just start with what your other job is cool yeah so um by day i work remotely for a professional basketball team as a data engineer as a senior data engineer so in essence to simplify what I do, if anybody's ever seen Moneyball, I'm part of the team that kind of facilitates that. So um, I do it for both the business and the basketball side, but any, the only thing anybody ever wants to hear about is the basketball side. So I integrate with different source systems to pull down uh, player metrics and player performance across the entire world, every college game, every international game, every NBA game, and then work with the, um, the in Moneyball, it was just one dude. It was Jonah Hill, but it's not legit. Like, there's three of us. So there's me that does the in, the integration of the data and compiles it in a manner for the statisticians to utilize. We have a, a data statistician who compiles it into specific metrics that are valuable to the team. And then we have a business intelligence guy who builds out the reports for the scouts. So, you know, believe me, I uh, it's it's not a bad job for a day job. It's pretty cool. Like I, you know, I work remotely. I only have to go meet with the team and the coaches like four times a year. And when I do, I'm like third row at the games, like watching basketball. It's not a tough gig, you know. But it it's different than it's not what I want to be doing every day. To your point, like it's it's a day job, and um, it's not something I would do for free and wait for somebody to pay me to do it. I I want to be paid to do it. You know, that's the difference between a dream and a job. You know, but 
I've always told like like my nieces and nephews like as you get older and and you do fall into those jobs the day jobs the cubicle jobs whatever the case may be it doesn't mean that the dream dies it just makes it harder and it's it's up to you to determine how much it means to you um, how much it means to you as to whether you're going to continue to pursue it so with you I mean with you guys too I'm sure it is difficult. Like I would much rather wake up every morning and walk into the office and be paid to write a script and then get a ton of money to walk on set and make a movie. Like, you know, cause that's the passion and the drive and I love it, but it's not impossible. Like I can still try to push my way through. It's just harder to do, you know? Yeah. I think that it's important to remember what you're doing it for. Yep. And, and, and always remembering that, there's other there's other time in the day as much as possible. Find if that means staying up until two in the morning. Yeah, totally. To write a script, then you have to do it because you know when I when I get off work, I, it's I'm, I I go from Daniel the office manager at you know a restaurant company to Daniel the father mm-hmm. and Daniel the husband, and then I wait till you know usually I wait till my wife goes to bed and then I can be Daniel the screenwriter. Yeah, and I know she doesn't mind if I wanted to grab the computer and write. She wouldn't mind that because she knows that's what I love and she's supportive of that. But also, I don't want like I'm not a fan of being in my my face in the computer and the phone when I ha- when I have time with her because during the week we see each other for what four hours a night maybe at five depending if you know she stays up a little later. And so I want to make sure that I'm there and available and not mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so yeah. if something comes up where she wants to talk, it's not I have to stop writing and then turn to that and then come back to it. I'd rather have, spend time with her and then go to writing and not let those interrupt each other, you know. And for me, uh, in case listeners haven't heard, I, I work in a medical office. I work in an internal medicine office and I work as a doctor's assistant. I assist with patient scheduling, uh, you know, entering data, medical records, and I am also in charge of insurance authorization. So if Daniel were to hit his head on this microphone, <laughs> I would very be very possible. Very possible. I would be the one to contact his insurance and get the MRI approved so he doesn't have to pay as much. And I've for- been very fortunate to have have had this job going on uh, just over five years. And it, I didn't start off with that specific title. You know, I just scanned medical records when I first moved down. And f- starting out, it was a great gig because it's a low emergency position. I could go in whenever or, you know, if I had an audition, I didn't have to be there. And I would, or when I was there, I would listen to podcasts about acting and or watch uh, inside the actor's studio to kind of keep that fuel alive but as I've worked there longer and the responsibilities have grown um, I've fortunately the doctor I work for is very supportive of my career and I'm able to have that communication with him of hey I have an audition for this film I just found out about it you know an hour ago can I come into the office in the morning, then leave for the audition, then come back, or sometimes just take off the whole first half of the day. And I'm very fortunate to have a boss who's willing to bend and, you know, adjust his schedule accordingly, and that I have coworkers who are willing to take on some of that added responsibility. But it is a nine to five, it's a nine to six job, Monday 
through Friday. And kind of like Daniel, a lot of the time it's like, I also have acting class a couple times a week. And so I'll typically not get back until 10, 10.30. And then, you know, you get the hour to spend, you know, for me with my girlfriend. And I try not to be plugged into like, whether it's doing stuff for the podcast at times or, you know, submitting for auditions while I'm at home. And then you spend that, you know, hour two in the very early morning uh, getting that stuff taken care of, the actor or the entertainment business side of stuff done. But I think for me, keeping creative is a thing that sustains me through the daily job. Yeah, I mean, if, if, if you have a day job and then the passion starts feeling like a day job, then maybe it's not the passion anymore. And, that, and that's something to recognize for some people. Like, you know, I mean, even this, like this means something to us, like to communicate with each other, whether people listen to it or not, to talk about this and move through our struggles. So it's almost 11 o'clock at night and we're here doing it. Like, that's what we do. Like we will find time late at night to do something like this because this is what we love to do and this is what we love to talk about. So if it means it, as you get older and you get responsibilities, it becomes harder, but it doesn't become impossible. If you feel it's impossible, then the passion's probably gone. If, if you have the passion, you'll find a way to get it done. You know, Daniel will stay up after his rest of his family's asleep to write. And you know, you'll get up at five in the morning. So you have three hours before you have to leave for work or whatever the case may be. You'll find those moments to, to break apart for it if it means enough to you. That's what I've found. Like, I'll find the time. Like, I will make a move. And and same thing you said. Like, I don't know, maybe I've been lucky too, but I'm pretty open with my job. Like, I'm, I work very hard for them and I, I love working for them and they're super nice people and, and they're, but they know I would love to be a film. They would love to make movies. Like, I want to be a director and I'm very open with them about that and they're supportive of it. And, you know, if I need to duck out a little early in a day. I mean, it's easier for me because I work remote too, but they're very accommodating and they're like, yeah, if we need you, we'll just text or something like that. I you think know? being very open with the employer is very important. Yeah, I mean, not in an insulting way, like, yeah, this is definitely not what I want to do. You know, but if you're respectful to them and you say like, man, I really love it here, but my this is my passion. I hope you can understand that. And, and this is the kind of things I might need to do to accommodate it. Then I find that most of them are. Again, you know, you got to just put it in the right manner. Like they feel what they do is is necessary too. So you can't be insulting to them and be like, eh, this job sucks. So I'm taking, but you know, so I might take off every other day to go do an audition. You know, you, you got to respect what matters to them in their life as well. But I think if you show that mutual respect, it'll help you, you know, move forward in all careers. Exactly. Know? And not feeling like you have to lie or something about it. So many yeah. times have I heard about people saying like, oh, I'm sick or, yeah. oh, I, something happened with the car and I can't make it. But when they finally found out that, oh, you left for an audition, all of a sudden that audition does seem, you know, it, it, it's been dirtied right. a little bit because you had to go about it in a dishonest manner. Whereas, you know, just being very upfront and saying, hey, this is, you know, I, I would love to work for you and I would be able to do all of this at 110%, but I, this is my passion. You know, f making movies is my passion. Acting is my passion. Yeah. If I have an opportunity, I need to have the flexibility to put some time towards that. But I'll give you as much notice as possible. Like for me, 
it's people's health that's on the line yeah sometimes and so i need to give the doctor as much notice because it impacts the way he gives care to people or you know make sure that the office still runs as smoothly as possible but if you're open and honest with your employer you know that for me is a good way to go about it and if they're not if they insult what it is that you want to do then I, I'd say ask yourself, is that a place you want to be? Yeah, you you need to, like, if it really, if you really want to make it in this industry, you have to be very cognizant to not put obstacles in your way to not make it. Like, again, like, I, you know, took a consulting job and then eventually joined the team full-time remotely because that was a caveat. I said, I will join the team, but I, I can't move to Orlando. I need to stay here. Like I can't put that obstacle in my way. It's different nowadays. You don't have to live here necessarily. You can write in Orlando and stuff. But for me personally, trying to direct and the people I've met here, I felt that that would be an obstacle and that's not an obstacle I was willing to put in my way. So you need to recognize that in yourself too. Like to your point, if that's, if they don't respect what you want to do, it may be harder for you to do it. Is that an obstacle you want to put in your way? You know? Um, again, it all comes down to how much passion you have for, for what you want to be doing, you know? I think you, you said it best, Mike, where it's like, wh how honest are you with your, your workers? Like when I was first interviewing for jobs down here, um, after moving from Dallas, I didn't tell anybody I was an actor because that's kind of what I originally was starting, trying to do just to make some money and kind of get network and things like that while I was writing at home. And I didn't tell any of my jobs I was an actor because I know the first thing they're going to think is, He's gonna need a lot of time off. Yeah. He's gonna need, you know, he's gonna to want to go to auditions, and you, there's gonna be a lot of last-minute call-ins and all this stuff. So I just told him I was a writer because to me that was easier. Because oh, he's not gonna to to leave early to write. Yeah, there's no auditions for writing, and so you know that that's kind of where I stuck with. And you know, weirdly enough, it became true. That's really what I focus on now. But um, you know, it's it's definitely like you want to be honest because you want to tell them like you, you want them to know like I'm taking this job because I want to do something else but at the same time you want to get hired and, and they want you to love this company yeah. you know and so I think part of that getting over that struggle of where you are is, is, is planning your time and, and you know what, what do you want to do and how can you get it done in the span of time you have available to you and getting the most out of that What's the most important thing to do? And if it's not, what's what can wait till maybe tomorrow at lunch? You yeah. know, if you have a lunch break, there you go. There's 30 minutes. You know, have a salad ready and just eat the salad while you're, you know, scheduling tweets or sending out resumes or searching through LA casting. You know. Yeah, I know it sounds like like super obvious, but I think people need to be honest with themselves too and like what why they're doing what they're doing and why they're chasing what they're chasing. Like, look, it's, I, I know people don't want to believe it, but it's super obvious to me on set as a director when somebody's lost the passion. Like when they're still, they still think they have a chance, but the passion for that has really died. It's super obvious to me, you know? And, and it makes me leery about working with them again. And, you know, as much as I hate to do it, you know, like people ask me like, oh, how was, how was this on set? And, you know, you don't want to, like, it costs a lot of money. It costs a lot of time to make movies. I don't want them, to, I don't want to be the guy that puts them in a position like, you know, you gave me somebody that's just totally losing the drive for this, this you know, industry. So, you know, if you got to be honest with yourself too, as to whether 
you have enough passion to chase what you're chasing, you know? And something I've been, you know, hearing a lot recently is what are you committed to? Mm -hmm. The time in which you spend your week, you know, if you just in a matter of just looking at your schedule and you take the amount of hours that you are dedicating to certain things throughout the week, what do you spend the most time doing? That's the thing that you're committed to. And granted, we all have responsibilities. Right. We all have things that we need to do. And so for me as an actor in this town, you, in reality, you don't act that often mm. in this town. It's a lot of the hustle and it's a lot of seeking out that opportunity. But for me, I, I recognize that I just need a place to act. I need to be in a place where I can just learn and be given that criticism and keep working on it. And so it's, I need to take acting classes. And so I try and commit as much time as I can, given my work schedule, to do that because that needs to be my commitment, not the full-time job. I think someone told me once that they, uh, that because they they told, somebody told me once that they told their actors or writers and other entertainment people to take a week and record everything they do during that week and time it out. So if you go play basketball with your friends, mark down in a journal, Wednesday, six to eight, play basketball with friends. You know, if fr Thursday night you went out with your girlfriend to a comedy club, you know, nine to one comedy club with a girlfriend. And, and then at the end of the week, take like columns and, and make categories, like spent time with girlfriend, work, worked on script, worked on acting stuff, like sent out reels or whatever, you know, acting grind, stuff like that. And then add up the hours for each of those categories and you'll realize where your uh, priorities are. Yeah. And, you, and, and, and how, what you need to shift because if, you know, if obviously work is important and you work at nine to five to pay your bills, that's always going to be the most. You need that 40 hours. But if the second one is not acting, sending out stuff and working on your grind, you need to think about where your priorities are. Yeah, I'm not trying to like discourage or talk anybody out of it, but you know, it's called you guys call this podcast Hollywood Hustle for a reason. Like it it is a hustle, man. It's a tough thing. Um it's it's something I would never give up in the world. Like mm -hmm. I love it so much. There is nowhere I would rather be than on set or even in in post like working with those the composer, my color corrector. Like I love sitting with that kid and just watching, you know, his passion for finding that image in that raw file, but but it is a hustle and it's it's a it's a tough gig and you really have to love it to to you know especially kind of where we are like you know none of us you know has an uncle that can just walk us into a, a meeting or anything like that like you know we got to grind it out and we got to show people the value that we feel we have and hope that they see it as well um so like i said i, I don't want it to sound discouraging but it is, it is a hustle you know and um and it's noticeable when when people care you know um one of the people who listen to this podcast who definitely cares, she's very vocal on our uh, you know, Twitter feed and everything. Her name is Lynn Ann McGee. Shout out, Lynn. Uh, she's actually, I believe, from Chicago. Nice. Um, and so we tweeted out that we're going to be talking with you, Josh, a filmmaker, and you know, let us know if you have any questions. And Lynn asks, music and photography are a big part of films for me. How much do those play into your filmmaking process? They're, they're huge, man. Like, um, and I know that they're not my, well, the music isn't my strength. Ironically, even though I, I used to play in a band and stuff, 
I'm I'm trying to grow in how I work with a composer and how I find the score within a music. Um, I mean, within a film, it's it's extremely vital and it adds so much the moment it's there, but it's still something I'm pushing towards versus like photography is everything to me. I'm always trying to, and, and you know, Michael, working with me, like I, I love every aspect of it, but what I really love is trying to find that interesting image that kind of, you know, immediately invokes an emotion and people are like, wow, I've never, I've never seen it framed in that manner or something like that. So photography for me and, and the way, you know, a still image is laid out and how a single still image can say so much trying to translate that on film is, is everything I'm trying to achieve. Like I want every frame of a movie of my movie to be a still photograph that says something like that's the point, you know, is there a cinematographer out there in the industry right now whose work you're just uh, amazed by or would love to eventually collaborate with one day? The guy that I always collaborate. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. Like shout out to Cuba. He's awesome. But, um, Definitely like uh, Matthew Libatik, the one that works with Darren Aronofsky the most. Um, not only am I a huge fan of Aronofsky, I'm a huge fan of how, uh, I think it's Libatik is how you pronounce it. He has no kind of limits. Like he doesn't, he will use whatever means necessary to get the image he wants. Like I, I think I heard on Black Swan, they even shot some of it on like uh, Canon 5Ds and, and then other parts of it on Super 16. He's not a guy that's like, oh, I have to use the latest of this camera. It's whatever he needs to get to facilitate his image in the way he thinks it would best portray he'll use and uh yeah i would love to work with that dude he's a stud man yeah and so with lynch he was also talking about music in the last episode you clearly love star wars so <laughs> john williams is just a clear example of how music can impact a film because i don't I, I can't imagine star wars without that score it's crazy you say that man i watched this um thing on on youtube that somebody was pointing out how it's not that way with like the modern Marvel movies. Like nobody can can like hum a Marvel theme. Like you can't. Like yeah. they're just not that prominent. There's you know? there's Hans Zimmer on the DC side of things, and he's also been working yeah. a little bit in the Marvel as well. Like he his scores are you can normally tell when it's Hans Zimmer right. a little bit, but it is true in the way how uh, generic things can sound. And I believe one of that is because filmmakers will use another person's score when they're initially doing their rough yeah, it's, edit of the score. Yeah, I so that's a weird thing. I I actually have, uh, one of the composers I work with, he's kind of requested it a couple times, like to, to do a temp track. So I go grab, so like Land of Happy Dreams, I grabbed three tracks um, that Trent Reznor had done for either Gone Girl or um, Dragon Tattoo, because to me they really fit the tone and style. But then it's tough because we're both like, Trent Reznor is amazing. Like the dude is an Oscar. Now. So we're chasing that and we're not gonna, like my composer is really good. And it's not that he can't achieve that. It's that he can't mirror it. Like he, like that, you can't rip it off. Like that would be, so we have, once we put down a temp track, it's so locked in our brain that 
wow, Trent Reznor would be amazing to score my film, you know? And, and you're then, chasing that. And then Trent, in a way, is like stealing what the score could actually be. Right. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of already filling into your brain. So it's a tough thing, man. I, I'm not, like I said, I'm still kind of learning that and working with that in terms of working with a composer because, you know, I see that they need, like, obviously they want to know your direction and I'm, I can't lay down a score or else I'd do it myself, you know? So, we don't speak the same language, so temp tracks are kind of the way we speak, but then it locks in something that you're chasing ever after, and, and it's it's tough, man. I, I, don't know, uh, I don't know what to do about temp tracks. So between a cinematographer or a composer, which would you choose? Like if you, if you had someone who was like the best at that thing that you would carry with you to each, every you know, production, Steven Spielberg, brought John Williams onto a lot of his films, would you see that more as an essential element or would you stick with a cinematographer? I mean, uh, I mean, you guys know they're, they're both super vital and super important. But for me right now, it's I collaborate a ton more with my cinematographer than I do with the composer. And maybe it's just because, you know, right now we're in short form. So the score, you know, on an eight minute film, a score is vital, but it's not setting the tone for a feature. So maybe that's why versus like when you only have eight minutes, it better be visually compelling or you're immediately going to lose people as good as to your point. Like it's hard to write an eight minute beginning, middle and end, let alone like something that looks visually stunning enough for people to sit down and watch a short. So it's definitely compo I mean, a cinematographer for me right now. Yeah. Fantastic. Thank you, Lynn, for that awesome question. Please, everyone uh, at, at LA Hustlecast, send us your questions. We're always happy to answer them. Uh, Michael, thank you so much for joining in on this conversation. That was uh, fantastic. Yeah, no, uh, thank you, Daniel, for having me. And Josh, I'm, I've seen Land of Happy Dreams. I've seen pretty much all of your work. and But I was so excited with this most recent film because it's closer and closer to what I feel like your style is. And it's really cool for me as your friend to have walked in in the Chinese theater. And I, I, I was running a little behind because I didn't plan for LA traffic <laughs> and I was running, racing from work and I had a podcast thing to do immediately afterwards. But it was that moment of like, I'm in the theater and there's already a film screening and I had that, oh no moment, like, did I miss it? And so I found a seat in the very front of the theater. So like I'm sitting as far back into my <laughs> chair as I can. But then all of a sudden you see an Otter Theory production. And for me, it was just such an overwhelming like, that's him. It was so cool to see your work on such a grand display. And I think it's some of the best work that you've done. So thanks, man. I appreciate it. Congratulate you on that. So thank you so much for being here. Yeah, no, I appreciate you guys having me. I mean, the point is to I, I hope that that one was better than the last one. And I hope the next one's better than that one. Like, that's why we do it. And that's why we keep moving forward, you know? Right. Absolutely. Now, Josh, uh, we have a tradition here. Uh, <laughs> it came over from an old online radio show that I, I used to do uh, before Facebook and after Friendster. There was a wonderful little place that people went to spend their time called MySpace. Uh, it would load too slow thanks to everybody's backgrounds and head selfies and top eights and music tracks and all that crap. Uh, but one of the great things that came out of uh, MySpace were annoying questions from quizzes that didn't matter at all. <laughs> uh, because you had two hours to kill and why not? So I found a 167 question MySpace quiz that has questions ranging from what did you do today to what is your favorite planet? So... 
you picked six numbers before we started the the, po- the podcast recording today that you had no idea what they matched to or what they were, right? Right. So now, Josh Otter, oh, this is your MySpace quiz. <laughs> <clears throat> are you ready? I'm ready. Question one. What are your three favorite colors? Uh, probably red, black, and green. All right. Number two. What's your favorite weather? Definitely sunny weather. I grew up in Chicago winters, and as much as I don't mind skiing every once in a while, I don't ever want to shovel snow again. (laughs) Fair enough, fair enough. Would it be hard to kiss the last person you kissed? No, this is my wife. Uh, Well, you looked at Michael, and I was like, was it Michael? Michael, would that be hard? (laughs) Not at all. (laughs) Have you ever had braces? Yeah, for a very long time. Oh, yeah. I had a set, and they didn't really do what they were supposed to, so then they had to put in. I wore braces for like like nine years or something like that. Oh, wow. Some ridiculous amount of time. All right, second to last question. Does somebody love you? Huh? Does somebody love you? I hope so. <laughs> well, we have her on the phone. <laughs> She's about to tell us the truth. We have her on a lie detector. All right, your final question of your MySpace quiz. Are you ready? Yes. Have you ever gotten pregnant? No. (laughs) Not that I'm aware of. (laughs) Well, we also have your doctor on the phone (laughs) with some great news. (laughs) And that is your MySpace quiz. I'm having a baby. The best thing about the MySpace quiz, it's a lot of setup for really, really nothing. There's no climax to it because that's every MySpace quiz. Where's my baby? Bring me the baby. Why are you 80? All of a sudden, did you just have a job? That's too old to have a child. Don't have a child at 80. So one last time, where can people find you? Uh, so everything for me is under Otter Theory, which is A-U-T-E-R uh, Theory. So OtterTheory.com, uh, Twitter is Otter Theory, Instagram, Facebook. Which you joined, but, which you joined eight days ago. Yeah, I'm so horrible at social media. Like, like I said, I kind of use it as like a news feed for the industry, which I think it's great for. Like Twitter, t- I've learned so much, like, you know, things that are dropping, like, you know, especially living here, like opening weekend there's always a director or actor doing a Q&A. Like if you're gonna go to it, and they don't pay extra, like if you're gonna go to an opening weekend, you might as well go hear the people that made the movie talk about it. So I use Twitter more as like finding that kind of stuff, but you can hit me up on there if you want. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, thank you so much again for being yeah, here, Josh. Thanks, man. We hope you come back again sometime. Uh, if you if you have anything else that come up, please let us know. Awesome. We'll definitely throw it out on the podcast, let people know that you have a premiere or you're, you're looking for actors or whatever you're looking for. Uh, let us know. We'll definitely help you out. Cool. But thank once you. again, thank you so much for coming on. This was fantastic. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, man. It was awesome. Uh, awesome. Uh, back to you, Daniel and Michael, in the studio. Hi there, everyone. Welcome back. Michael here for our outro discussion on Act 2 with Josh Otter. Now, that for me was personally one of my favorite conversations that we've had on the podcast. Daniel and Josh were able to speak so much into the process of being a writer. Now, as you all know, I'm an actor. Uh, Writing is not necessarily my strong suit. That's the thing I need to work on. I love the advice that Dan and Josh were both able to give that writer's block, just more so a fear of something. What is that fear? Now, I know for me, my own personal thing is that whatever it is that I'm about to write is not going to be as good as what what I have in my head. It's that fear of not being able to perfectly capture what it is the story that I want to tell as Josh was just alluding to I just need to get that garbage draft on the page it doesn't matter how 
good it is or how close it is to the vision that I have in my head. I just need to do it. I just need to go to the computer and just start writing because if I keep finding these excuses, I'm never going to write. And then I won't be able to say that I've written these plays or these poems or anything like that. I would love to hear from you, the listeners, uh, what your advice is for someone like me who I, I want to write. And it's that moment of just sitting down and seeing the cursor blinking on or off or twiddling the pen in my hand and just not sure how to approach it. How do you approach writing characters and dialogue and action? It's something I know I can do, but lately it's been something I've been having a hard time on. So I'd love to listen to you uh, from you listeners, uh, what your processes are for when it comes to writing. Something that Josh also talked about in Act 2 doing outside jobs to help support your art and he said that it doesn't mean that the dream dies but it just gets harder and it's up to you to determine how much it means to you as to whether you're going to continue to pursue it every artist goes through this struggle sometimes here in LA it's a daily struggle of I have this job I have all these responsibilities these opportunities aren't coming to me for me to do the art to me for me to do the thing that I love it's all about sitting back and being comfortable with who you are as a person and knowing that you're enough and that it's okay. It's okay that you have an outside job. We need to be able to buy food and, you know, have a roof over our heads. It's fine that you're doing something that's maybe not in the industry that you want to be in. As long as you know you're working towards that, that you're not letting the job you're currently at define you, that's fine. You know, you're not a server for your entire life. You are not a garbage person. You're not a medical record scanner for the rest of your life. That is not who you are. What is it that you want to do? What is it that you're passionate about and that you're committed to? What do you spend most of your time doing? We obviously have our day jobs that we need to do to supply funds for us to pursue our art. But how else do you find ways to bring art back into your schedule. As an actor, if you wait for opportunities to quote-unquote just act, you're going to be sitting around for a long time waiting for that opportunity. So it's about finding those opportunities to act. And for me, I recognize that I needed to be in class. I needed to be in that creative environment where it's okay to fail and for me to perfect uh, my craft and also to grow and learn and be challenged. That could also mean simply getting your phone out and getting some scripts together, whether it's from a favorite TV show or an audition that you recently were on, sitting around with your friends and putting each other on tape and watch yourselves, critique yourselves, find out what you could be doing better when it comes to self-tape auditions or auditioning in general. It's okay to have that day job or that night job that supports what you want to do, but don't think that that is who you are. Who you are is, you know, whatever it is that you want to do, whether you're an actor, an artist, a singer, constantly bring that art back into your schedule. And I promise you, you will start feeling so much better, so much more committed to your art by simply doing that. Uh, now, guys, I just got in my car from acting class, speaking of that, and I never have done my Mrs. Doubtfire impersonation in front of an audience before, and... It not only got laughs and stuff, I was able to get caught up in the emotion of why I was doing it. I'm so thankful to have had that chance to 
just go and try. Even though I've never performed it in front of an audience, that I just went and I did it. And it made me feel more free. And it's opening me up to just more ideas of things that I want to do in this class. Now, everyone, I'd love to hear about what your thoughts are for this interview. If you have any questions for Josh, you can tweet at him, Instagram, at Otter Theory, or you can email us, uh, hollywoodhustlepodcast at gmail.com, and we can send your questions over to Josh, and we can answer them here on the podcast. You can also reach out to us on social media. We're on Twitter, at LA Hustlecast. We're also on Facebook and Instagram, at Hollywood Hustle Podcast. Now, coming up next week, we are so excited to bring you our conversation with rock star, lead singer, talent manager, multi-hyphenate, talented dude, Eric Knight. Uh, Eric's going to share with you his journey from that started off in Miami, Florida, and how music truly shaped his identity and how no matter what, he always found ways to create opportunities for him to share his work. And we are so thrilled to be sharing new music from his band, Disciples of Babylon, including two new songs, Freedom and Without You. So definitely stay tuned for our episodes next week. It's going to be a great time. I hope you had a wonderful time today listening to Act 2 with Josh Otter. So everyone, keep on going. Know that you are enough, that even though you might not be in the big movies and stuff right now, just keep working at it. Just keep working on your craft. And always remember, keep up the hustle. This episode of Hollywood Hustle Podcast was hosted by Daniel Tuttle and produced with Michael Lutheran. Kel Torados is our sound engineer, and Mike Tobias edited our website. For more information about the show, visit our website, hollywoodhustlepodcast.com.